I, I think nowadays, talks about ethnicity and race have gotten strangely weird. It's like we traveled back in time to the 1960s. And, and I, think, I think because of this climate, sometimes writers are afraid to write outside of their own ethnicity. But I also think it's a, a necessary thing. Welcome to the At Sea podcast. I'm Justin McRoberts. This podcast puts you in touch with great artists who make great work because I think what they do helps us live richer and deeper lives. This episode features writer, illustrator, and graphic novelist Gene Luen Yang. He's the writer of several great books, including American Born Chinese and Boxers and Saints, both of which were nominated for National Book Awards. He's currently the writer of Superman for DC Comics. In September of last year, I invited Gene to my hometown of Concord, California, to talk about the significance of comics, the journey of Asian Americans in pop culture, and how to authentically approach topics like race and religion and art. One note before we begin, the latter part of the podcast, Gene is joined by a friend of his and a local San Francisco Bay Area legend named Joe Field, who is the owner of Flying Colors Comics and other cool stuff. But his real claim to fame might be his promotional work behind a saucy little novel, with just about the raciest title you can imagine. Check it out. Thank you. Are you still, are you still teaching at ODAP? I'm not, yeah. I, I left my teaching position. How long were you there? I was there 17 years. 17, 17 years. years yeah. Fantastic. 17 years as a high school teacher. I think that deserves some applause. <laughs> Thank you. You did, uh, you got to speak at an event in uh, the National Book Festival mm-hmm. uh, in 2014. You, get, you gave a, a, a talk about, uh, about diversity uh, at the, just this past year. In which you, you talked about, and I'm going to pull up the image here as soon as I can get my tech to work. Um, okay. That about the character Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, and the and the sort of the, the pivotal point that the, the sort of the pivot point that Black Panther as a character is in comics history. Can you give us a little bit of that right now? Like, sure. I, I was talking about Black Panther in the context of the. Uh, 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 I was talking about, primarily talking about a writer, a comic book writer named Dwayne McDuffie, who I admire very much. He is unfortunately no longer with us. He's an African-American, one of the most prominent African-American writers uh, in, in American comics. And um, he wrote this essay where he talked about the Black Panther. The Black Panther is one of the few African-American superheroes in the Marvel Universe who has had his own title. So Dwayne McDuffie talked about how when he was a kid, he read this Black Panther story. And because he read that Black Panther story, he got into comics as a career. Black Panther is not a perfect character. Uh, he is not a perfect representation of what it means to be a black man. Like, like first, he has the word black in his, in his name. In his superhero yeah, name. Yeah, and, and early African-American characters, they always had the word black in their name. It was like their ethnicity mattered more than anything about, else about, about their character. And uh, he, was, he was created by these two like, middle-aged Jewish-American men. And, and there's just lots of little funky things about his, his character. But despite his imperfections, he was still able to inspire this young African-American boy to grow up to become a writer. So the, the context of that was, uh, of my talk was, um, I, I think nowadays, nowadays um, talks about ethnicity and race have gotten strangely, like, Weird. I feel like, I feel like, I, I feel like when you read the, I feel like when you read the news, it's like we traveled back in time mm. to the 1960s. You know, like there are now like church bombings and stuff. It's just crazy. It's crazy to me. And, and I think, I think because of this climate, sometimes writers are afraid to write outside of their own ethnicity. But I also think it's a, a necessary thing, right? You can't have an entire book where every single character is just a reflection of your own cultural understanding and your own cultural background. So the, the, the point of the talk was just to encourage people to have the, to have the courage to write outside of their ethnicity. You said a thing in, in your talk um, that I want to point out, and I think it's right here, this is, which is it's a remarkable thing to say, that it's okay to make mistakes in your first draft. But yeah. then you, which, like, as, you know, if you've read a book on creativity, you'll hear someone say, you know, your first work is going to be bad. It's okay to do, you know, bad work up front. But the second half of this, the notion that, that some of those mistakes you're going to make are cultural mistakes. And I think it cuts to, it cuts to some of what you're going after with the, the sort of cultural tensions around ethnicity, around race, 
like <laughs> that's a dangerous space to get something wrong yeah, nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we feel it. I think we as writers feel it. And and I think the writers uh, biggest, I, I guess maybe any artist, any artist's biggest obstacle is the fear that they feel, right? So, so that talk was kind of, it, it was about a fear that I've faced, uh, that I continually face, and, and I just wanted us, like I was talking mostly to writers, and I just wanted us as a writing community to be able to move forward in that. I do think, like I, I think, I think when, you are, when you are writing about uh, another person's experience, whether that person is different from you in terms of gender or culture or whatever, you're going to probably get some stuff wrong, right? Uh, and, and the stuff that you get wrong is going to direct you in terms of your homework that you're going to have to do to complete that piece. But if you never get it down on the paper in the first place, you're not going to know what you did wrong, and you're never going to move forward with that character. So that's what, that's what this was about. So you're, you're talking about approaching a, a kind of a like cultural learning in, a, in the same way as you approach creative discipline. Yeah, absolutely. If, you're, absolutely. if, the, if you go through the doorway of, or if you, if you stay outside of the door because you're afraid, you never go through the door of experimentation and... You never learn. Yeah. You never, you yeah. never learn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that when you are writing somebody else's culture, you have to do meticulous homework. You, know? you have to just be hardcore about your homework. But if you never are able to put that first draft down, you're just not even going to know what the homework is that you're supposed to do. You, in, your, in your first major publication, American Born Chinese, we talk about, we're talking about like fear and tension and, and the, like the murky, strange waters of ethnicity and race. There's a character, and I told him this earlier, if you've, if you've not yet read American Born Chinese, it is truly one of the best books you'll ever read in your life, top to bottom, just this phenomenal piece. I, I, I'm sitting on an airplane... And I'm laughing out loud, hysterically laughing out loud, tears. And as I do, I'm hiding the page that I'm on because I'm ashamed <laughs> at what I'm laughing at because it's this character right here whose name is Cousin Chin Key. Yeah. I'm not, I, like, even as I say the word aloud, Chin Key, I don't, I'm not, I gotta, like, I'm not supposed to find this funny. Like, this is, like, I'm uncomfortable. Like, this, the character kind of comes in and he is Every single stereotype of like of Asian person that like, and I'm I am dying of laughter and I feel like a horrible human being. That's kind of awesome. That's okay. kind of what I was going for. Yeah, that's well, kind I'm of awesome. Well, I'm glad you feel good about that. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what Cousin Chiki is. Is he? I took all of the stereotypes of Chinese and Chinese Americans and Asians and just stuck them into a single character. And it's sort of me. Um, Exercising one of my demons. I think. I think that's what. That's what it felt What's that, like. What do you mean by exercising one of your demons? Like it, it was. I, I did it. Well, I, I hope it doesn't spoil anything. But I did it so that I could behead this character at the very end. That's that, that's what it is. I, I really think you know with 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 cousin Cheeky. A lot of people have asked me. A lot of readers have asked me. Is it okay if I if I laugh? And um, what I think is, is it okay if I that, laugh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> there there are three major uh, reactions that I get. Uh, to the Cousin Chingy character. For a, a lot of older Asian-American readers, like readers who are in their 50s and 60s, will come up to me and they'll say, they saw this character and it was so uncomfortable that they had to put the book down. And I feel like that's kind of what I was going for. That's cool. And then uh, folks who are a little bit younger will come up and they'll say, you know, I found Cousin Chingy funny, but I laughed with this knot in my stomach and I wasn't, like, I felt just really uncomfortable about laughing. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, what I wanted to, because I think racism is kind of funny. I'll tell you about that in a second. And, and then, and the third, the third reaction I get is um, like, uh, like sometimes every, this is very rare, but every now and then at a comic book convention, somebody will come up to me and go, "Do you have like a plush doll of Cousin Chinky? Because I just find them so cute." And then I think, "Oh my God, that is." That's not what I was going for. That like, makes me feel that is, that is a miss. Yes, that missed. That missed right there. Absolutely. You did not get now, what now, I was about, doing. About racism being funny. I think there are two ways in which racism is funny. I okay. think um, racism can be funny uh, because we find the racist ideas themselves so laughable that it makes us laugh. You know, that's so ridiculous that it makes us laugh. Or racism can be funny because we think those racist ideas might be true. Like, the, like I think America. I think that's a fine line. I think that's a fine line, and I think America struggles with that line. But that line is still there. You all know who Dave Chappelle is, right? 
So Dave Chappelle, if you've ever watched that show, it's, it's, on, it's on Netflix. He plays with that line a lot. Yes. A lot of times he is going for the laugh at the ridiculousness of the racist idea itself. Yes. But the reason why he quit the show, if you read interviews about him, uh, the reason why he quit the show was because he felt like America was not sophisticated enough to understand that line, to know what the, where that line was. That's fascinating. See, I, I, I'm thinking of, like, I'm an old, I, I grew up watching, watching comedy, like comedians. Uh-huh. And so guys like Richard Pryor and, and Chevy Chase, who had a sketch. And actually, if I had thought about it ahead of time, I would have I pulled it. And it's one of the most uncomfortable sketches I've ever seen in my life. And I can't even do it publicly because I could be shot. <laughs> is, is Richard Pryor is interviewing for a job. Have you seen this sketch? I haven't. He's interviewing for a job, and Chevy Chase is doing the interview. And they do, as the last part of this interview, a, a word association game. And as the game goes on, Chevy Chase keeps saying these like, insanely racist things, like these horrible like, words for, for African Americans. And, you and you're watching Richard Pryor get more and more steamed and bark back at him all these like, horrendously racist things about white people. And it's, like, it's this increasing tension and comedy. And part of it, like, when you talk about the, like, America's not sophisticated enough, I, I feel like you're right in the sense that it seemed like in that time in comedy and entertainment, we were moving, I don't know what to say, like past some of those things, but there just was less of a fear. Like they did that on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, and there yeah. was, there was yeah. a, it was sort of like the beheading of a character. They were like lifting this, this demon up of, of the, the racial tension between white and black, and, they were, and they're putting it on a pedestal so they could kill it. They could laugh about it uh-huh, and uh-huh. kill it. And something happened... <laughs> Who knows how, but something in the last several years, like, you couldn't run that skit on no, TV no, now. Yeah. It just changed. It, it just, you feel that tension, and you, are you going after that, like, not just with, with Cousin Chin Key? Is that a conscious effort often for you? Is that something you're chasing down is trying to exercise that racial well, tension? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think I primarily write out of my own life. So, so a lot, of, I mean, I, I think that's where Cousin Chinky came from. I, I think Cousin Chinky comes out of a time in my life when I was actually ashamed of my ethnic identity. And, and I think when I thought of being Chinese, I thought of Cousin Chinky. And that's why I wanted to run as far away from my parents' culture as I could. You did a... Um, oh, there's a, a question there. Oh, over here, yeah, go ahead. Good job. Yeah. Uh, with Superman being an immigrant, basically, you can take those experiences from your life and apply that to Superman. Because, yes, Superman is easy to write. Because he takes bullets, he flies, he shoots lasers, he does everything. But his humanity is, he's an immigrant lost in this world. But he passes as a cisgender, straight, white, American, Christian man. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I think his, his, his creators were both uh, the children of Jewish immigrants. And I think that was very much the, the Jewish experience. Like most Jews could pass in America at the time, uh, and, and, but they still felt like outsiders. I think they put all of that into the Superman character. And that's one of the connection points that I have with that Superman character is that he is very much tied into the immigrant experience. Very good. Great question. That's right. That's right. Black Panther is an African. You're right. He's not an African American. Absolutely. You're right. He's the king of was it Wakanda? Wakanda. That's right. Yes. Yes. Um, you did an, an like an origin piece or an origin book, an origin story mm-hmm. for what you can, might consider to be the the first Chinese American superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a screenshot from from the book. Um, What's and and the superhero the, the comic book's name and we've got it here in the back Joe from from Flying Colors brought it and it's called Sh- the Shadow Hero is the name of the graphic novel the character's name is is the Green Turtle is the Green Turtle yeah yep. the what's character's the, name is the Green Turtle what's the story there and why the, did you decide the to the Green Turtle is a character that dates back to the 1940s he was created by a guy named Chu Hing who was one of the first Asian Americans to work in the American comic book industry and there's a rumor about the Green Turtle the rumor is that. Chu Hing wanted him to be a Chinese-American like he himself was, but his publishers wouldn't let him do it because uh, they didn't feel like a Chinese-American superhero would sell at the time in in 1940s America. So Chu Hing reacts in this really passive-aggressive way. 
because he's a cartoonist, and that's how we deal with adversity. <laughs> he, he draws these early Green Turtle comics so that you almost never see his face. He almost always has his back turned towards you, so all you see is his cape. And uh, when he is turned around, something is blocking his face, like there's a shadow that's over his face, or he's punching and his arm is like this. The rumor is that he did this. He hid the face in his comics so that he and his reader could imagine his character as he originally intended, as a, a Chinese-American. Chu Hing never gives us an origin story. He never confirms whether or not he actually is a Chinese-American. Uh, the Green Turtles canceled after five issues. So I saw a space there. You know, I, I worked with a friend of mine named Sunny Liu, uh, amazingly talented cartoonist, and we created an origin story for this obscure character from the 1940s. Why do you think there is sort of a, I don't know, there's a gap or a space there when we talk about racial tension and we talk about reconciliation and the story of race in America, there aren't a lot of spaces in pop culture in which we're engaging with the, the Asian American story. Why, why does that exist? Like, why, why is the gap there? Do you, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing you pick that up as an Asian American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why is that there? Is it a harder story to tell? Is like, why is that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I have a definitive answer to that. I think I, think I have hints at an answer. One is, um, I, I think it comes from uh, immigration patterns. I think, uh, like, uh, there's a huge wave of Asian American immigrants in the 1970s. You know, the, that's my parents' generation. And back then, if you wanted to get into America, you had to be in the math or sciences. Uh, that's, that's basically, that was your ticket in. So, so I think that kind of biases at least portion of the Asian American community towards the math, of, uh, towards math and science. I mean, that's where a lot of those stereotypes As come opposed from. to into like it a more from, storytelling culture. Yeah, yeah. It comes from, a, it comes from just an immigration pattern. I, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. And, um, and I, I, I do think that, um, like if you, if you look at, I, I'll just talk about comics because that's what I know the best. Uh, like if you look at, if you look at superhero comics in America, it took a long time for them to introduce uh, like color in, in a meaningful way. You know? and, and I think that's just part of... That's, I, 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 think, um, I think often the majority culture doesn't realize they're the majority culture. Uh, uh, it, it's harder. It's harder for the majority culture to realize that they're the majority culture. I think the same dynamic exists in Singapore between the majority Chinese and, and the different ethnic minorities there. You just don't realize that you're the majority because you're the majority. You're like fish in water. And it takes story. It takes a little while. Yeah, it takes a little while for the stories to work their way in to the, to, to, to the cultural narrative. Yeah. I'm going to take, turn a little corner here, but any, any, another question from the floor? Right here, big and loud. Oh, okay, so American Born Chinese has these three different storylines that intertwine. Uh, I am an outliner, so I outlined the entire book, and I figured out where the connection points were for all three storylines before I started on the book. And I think that made it a little bit easier. But, but really, I wanted that story to be about the Asian American experience. I came up with these three ideas, and I just couldn't decide which one I liked the best, and that's why. So you did all three. I, I wove them <laughs> together into a single book, yeah. There was another hand down here. Go ahead. Did you ever quit comics for, for uh, family? I, I went through periods where it was just hard to find time to do comics, but I had always planned on going back. It was, I'm not like my friend Derek. Like Derek. My friend Derek just straight up stopped. He never wants to make another comic in his entire life. Wow. So I, I never reached that point. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, that's an intense thing. That's he spent right. like 15 years, 16 years in the industry. Wow. I still feel sad about it. Over here in the back. Go ahead. You can stand up and be real loud. How would I feel? How, how would I think I'd be really stuff? sad. I think comics are such a big part of my life. I feel like I'm not done yet, you know? Maybe there's going to be a point in the future where I feel like I've said everything I wanted to say through my comics. And at that point, I could be done. But I'm not, I'm not there yet. My goodness. <laughs> right here in the middle. How much freedom do you have when you're working like Superman or you're, you know, doing these backstories to create the story Okay, so how much how much uh, freedom do I have when I work on licensed characters? That's what you're. That's what. That's what. They <laughs> just want to know if he's going to die. That was um, hard the first time. It is. It is definitely much more of a collaborative process. So I work as part of a team. There are actually four different Superman books. There's Superman, 
Batman, Superman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Action Comics. And the four writers have to constantly coordinate. So there's that. And then we do also get input from the higher-ups at DC. So all of that gets worked into the mix. When I work on my own stuff, like American Born Chinese and anything from First Second Books, I definitely have much more creative freedom. It's much more like being just in a community of one. Are they comparable experiences, like, like so that you could have a preference, or is it so different? They're really different. They're really different. I think... Um, I think writing, writing my own stuff is easier for me. I, I feel like I just get to follow my instincts and that's it. But I definitely learn more by, by playing in somebody else's sandbox. Just because you're picking up on other people's cues. Yes. yes, absolutely. And seeing how other people approach story. Over here. Yes, you, sir. Oh, yeah. With a hand up. Yeah, so in, in Superman right now, um, Lois Lane exposes Superman's identity to the world. And that, that was in the very first story arc that I worked on. The, the gasps. The, of people, like, how could she? I, always, yeah. I just never, I never trusted her. I never did. I always had a weird feeling about her as a person. Man, I have gotten so many emails about that. It's so crazy. But uh, we were given a mandate. The Superman team was given a mandate to introduce something really intense in Superman's life. And that's what we came up with as a team. It's a phenomenal storyline. If you, again, if you're one of the first 30 folks, you came in, you got an edition of Superman 41, which is your first Superman. But uh, Joe also has the following two uh, on the table. So you want to pick up 42 and 43 on the way out. It's an amazing storyline. You want to be part of that going forward. It really is. I'm not, I'm a Batman fan. uh, And I'm, and I'm now reading Superman and I'm now set it publicly, uh, which is hard for me to do. I'll be honest with you. It's part of my shame story as well. Uh, one of the things you approach, uh, and I've, I've used this term here a couple of times, there are these kind of third rail topics in, in culture and storytelling and film and books, one of which is, is race and ethnicity. And if you, cause if you, if, if you get there, that third rail, it's, there's all this power. You could really blow, you could blow yourself up doing it. The other one is faith and religion. And you just go there too. Like you just like, you just sort of said, where, where could I die? And then you went there. And so you like, here's a, a, a couple shots from, from the, uh, from the book. It's actually kind of a two-volume book called Boxers and Saints in which you deal in multiple angles with religion and with faith and spirituality and with mythology. Does it ever feel – does it feel like a risk to you? Is it just really natural? Yeah, I think it feels funky. I, I, I mean I think for a lot of those third rails, there's a reason why they become like that, right? Like for race, there's just – there's a lot of pain in, in this country when, when it comes to race. Even now, there's, there's, there's a lot of pain, yeah. you know? And, and uh, I, I think there's uh, a, a lot of ways in which – that pain has just gone unaddressed. So when you, when you hit that third rail and when you feel that electrocution, that's what you're feeling. You're mm. feeling this historical pain that lies underneath. And I think the same happens with religion. I think, I, I think there's a lot of pain associated with the topic of religion and the topic of faith. So the, there's, a, there's a way in which you have to approach these sorts of topics understanding that pain, you know, or, or, or being cognizant of it, at least. For me, I, I um, especially on the topic of faith, I did a creative writing minor in, in college, and I really struggled with this. You know, college was the, the first time that I really started taking the whole topic of faith seriously. And uh, in one of my creative writing classes, I went to office hours with my professor, and I told her about this. I said, I'm not totally sure how to write about topics of faith you know, without it sounding preachy or false or anything. And, um, and she said to me, basically, she said, um, you, should just, you should never write about your faith, ever. You should live your faith and then write your life. And if your faith is authentic, it'll come out in her writing. You had a heck and, of a teacher. That's, yeah, she was great. She was great. Her name is Thaisa Frank. She was a Romanian-American. She was a practicing Buddhist I could imagine, like, I was a, I was a Chinese-American Catholic. I could imagine our ancestors just <laughs> flipping in their graves. But, but she was great. She was awesome. Yeah. That actually really lines up with Neil Gaiman's uh, advice earlier. That you yeah, absolutely. Live your life. Yeah, go, go live, live your life. life. 
and then, and then write, write about, about your life. As opposed yeah. to trying to invent some sort of narrative, try to figure out a way to yeah. talk about something. As, to, pro, as opposed to taking a pure craft approach to, to writing, right? Where you're just worried about craft. So, as the writer of Superman, as a comic book fan, you know that every great superhero has a nemesis. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for Superman, there's Lex Luthor. For Batman, there's the Joker. Do, do you, as a person, does Gene Yang, <laughs> as a writer, as a, as a human being, do you have a nemesis? Is there something in the world that you, in your work and your life, you sort of pursue, you go after, and if you could kill it uh, or conquer it, that you would, you would have a sense of personal victory. Is there, is there, do you have a nemesis in your life? Or is there something you're chasing down? Yeah. Cheese. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am lactose intolerant. But uh, no, I, I would say... Uh, that would be a really great series yeah. of books. I, <laughs> I would say that the real answer is fear. I think I, think I struggle a lot with fear. You know? Um, wow. you, know that, you know that whole Enneagram thing? You yeah. know what that is? I have friends who are really into it. I, I've never actually done it myself, but my friends who are really into it, they'll always go, you have a need to be safe. I don't even know what that means, but I think that's true, right? I think I... Um, You've I think, been judged uh, by this diagram yes. of sorts. You don't know what it is, yeah. but you feel really judged yeah, by but it. I, I yeah, but I do think I have a, like a deep-seated need to be safe that makes me really, really risk-adverse, even when the risk... Um, could lead to a po- like a positive income, uh, outcome. I think I think that's what I struggle with a lot. That's powerful. That's powerful. I'm I'm going to invite a, another guest up, and this is the kind of an at sea first. We'll have multiple guests up here on the stage. And um, if you walked in and you picked up uh, anything from the table, and uh, you would have met had you not done so before, uh, someone I would consider is a, a, a local hero and a legend of sorts in college, being in 1992. Uh, I would drive home from St. Mary's into Concord, and once a week I would stop by this little shop over by Dallasau High School called Flying Colors Comics uh, that I was turned on to by my good friend Lance Johnson, who's here tonight. And uh, I'd always just kind of figure there's just a comic book store. Of course there's a comic book store, but there's not just a comic book store. There's a great story behind the fact that there's a comic book store here. Uh, and we have the, the founder of uh, Flying Colors Comics with us tonight. So will you please welcome to the stage... Mr. Joe Field. Thank you. Joe, uh, as, as I was walking out and, and handing off uh, Gene's microphone to him, he noticed this, this bow tie that I wear every time we do an at-sea event. It's a Spider-Man bow tie, and tonight's actually a little bit more appropriate than other nights. <laughs> and Joe saw, they spotted it as folks do. I'm like, hey, it's a really neat tie. I said, thanks. But then he went this other step, and he said, ah. Oh, I know which issues those images are from. Like, he knew the issues from which the Spider-Man images... This is like, like this is, I'm really happy to have Joe with us. You started uh, Flying Colors in 1988? Uh, we opened in October 88, so we're coming up on our 27th anniversary. Um, my, my wife, who is here in the back... Um, uh, when we uh, decided to get into the comic book business, I, I was in radio for 10 years before that, uh, doing marketing and sales. Well, are you okay now? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm okay now. Um, but when we decided to get into comics, my wife and our three young daughters became my marketing research team. And I wanted to do something with my shop that was going to be different than... Um, the quintessential dark, dusty comic shop. I, I wanted a, a shop that was going to be open and inviting to everyone. Yeah. Um, and at that time, 27 years ago, uh, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find too many girls or women walking into comic book stores, yeah. unfortunately. But uh, my goal was always to make sure that our business, our um, uh, little community center, it was open and attractive to everyone. Now... Here's a bit of the story that, that I only really recently kind of dug up and figured out, and I'd heard rumor about this. But in reality, it didn't. The Flying Colors Comics and other cool stuff did not start really conceptually in Concord. The story kind of starts in Stockton, and it involves a guy that, even if you're even semi nominally involved in comics, you know the name Stan Lee. How does Stockton plus Stan Lee? 
equals Flying Colors comics and other cool stuff in Concord. How's that happen? I told you I was in radio, and I was really bored with my job. I, I sold advertising. I wrote, over the course of 10 years, I wrote probably 2,000 radio commercials. Maybe a dozen of them were any good. Um, but uh, I, was, I was bored in my job, and I was getting towards the end of it. I was feeling burnout, so I was looking for things to do. Marvel was coming up on its 25th anniversary in 1986. So in 1985, I got this bright idea to... Um, to petition Marvel to change the um, uh, continuity of the Fantastic Four comic. Because in the original uh, first issue of Fantastic Four in 1961, the opening caption says, in Central City. Well, Stan, that was a, either a letterer's mistake or Stan's scripting mistake. He wanted it to be in the center of the city, meaning in the center of New York, but it came out Central City. And then years later, another writer amended it to Central City, California. Huh. So I thought, okay, here it is coming up on the 25th anniversary of Marvel Comics. Let's change Central City, California, which there isn't a Central City, California, to the most central city in California, Stockton, which is where I was living and working at the time, and see if Marvel Comics will get behind it. So I put together a petition, and we put it in the local comic shop, Al's Comic Shop in, in Stockton, and we had several hundred people sign this petition, wow. and then I took it in front of the city council on TV. <laughs> Some of this stuff you can see on YouTube, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but... Um, and I was dead serious about it. Here I am doing this thing that's so incredibly fun, you know, trying to bring a lot of fun to a lot of people and, and show how great comics are and that they're for everybody. And I'm stone-faced in front of the city council when, when uh, one of the city councilmen says, uh, so uh, does this mean uh, the mayor gets to be the invisible woman? You know. <laughs> it was... It was it was a difficult time to try to do anything comics-related uh, among the general public. But um, because I stood up in front of the city council, it hit the Associated Press newswire. Huh. And the next day, uh, Stan Lee was called by a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, he was their, their chief um, uh, features reporter, a really great guy named uh, Charles Hillinger. And uh, Hillinger wanted to do a story about, wow. about this whole thing. So he called Stan, and Stan said something along the lines of, Stockton, we've saved universes before. The least, this is the least we can do for good old Stockton. <laughs> he said that without talking to the editors or anyone who was working on the Fantastic Four book. They had a, a, a story already planned to jettison... Central City, California, 10,000 years into the future and obliterate it from the Marvel Universe so they would be done with this little continuity error. And then I come along and I, I did this thing and all of a sudden they had to change their plans. Well, so. just to be fair, I think there have also been plans to jettison Stockton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that have also come before yes, the mayor. At, I think, at, at, uh, at that time, they were that far. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. So... Uh, we did this deal where Stan decided, uh, Marvel decided to get behind the, the idea, and they agreed that in the 25th anniversary issue of Fantastic Four, that it would become Stockton. And so Stockton is all over that. Stockton's in a few other issues uh, since then. Um, and when that uh, proclamation was made, we uh, did this big deal on the steps of City Hall in Stockton, and Stan flew up from, from L.A., and uh, uh, there was a costumed Spider-Man who was crawling around the, t uh, the stairs of City Hall taking pictures with kids, um, and every TV station and radio station in Northern California was there. And if anybody knows anything about Stan Lee... He loves a camera. And so this was like candy to a baby. <laughs> it, and so he ate it up. It was, it was great. And uh, we had a good time. They put it in the comics. And then um, uh, I had lunch with him that day when we did this big event in Stockton. And, um, and he said, you know, kid, 
you did a really good job on this campaign. And I said, thank you. Stan, and I was, look, I was in sales, so I knew what to do next. I had, I had an opening for a pitch. <laughs> and that was, that was, well, you know, Stan, if you ever need someone for a PR position, just give me a call. A few months later, I get a phone call. You're kidding me. And it's Stan Lee. And Stan says, remember when you said you wanted to be a PR guy for me? I said, yeah, <laughs> this is crazy. He said, well, my wife's got a novel coming out, and her publisher isn't giving her a lot of attention, and I'd like to give her some attention. I'd like to hire you to be her publicist, and I will help you with this. So I became Stan Lee's outside man for a few months, helping his wife get interviews and reviews of this steamy little romance novel called The Pleasure Palace. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, I agreed to do this ever. before I knew what it was. Oh, it's going to be optioned for a CBS miniseries, right? Yeah. All of that. Well, anyway. CBS. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. so, so for the next several months, all I did was uh, every day I got to talk to Stan Lee. Wow. And uh, for me, now, my origin story in comics is that in, in 1967, on the third day of summer, I fell out of a tree, broke my arm in several places, couldn't play baseball, couldn't go swimming, couldn't do any of the things that... I wanted to do as a kid, and the neighbor kids would bring, uh, brought me little get well gifts, and someone brought me this beanbag frog, and it's not a whole lot of fun when you've only got one arm, um, but a friend, uh, my good friend Steve, still my good friend, um, is, um, uh, brought me two comic books. He brought me Amazing Spider-Man number 51 and Fantastic Four number 65. So I started with the Fantastic Four. Wow. And uh, that's became... It, uh, 1967, everyone... You, you've heard it called the Summer of Love? No, it was the Summer of Comics. Yes. That's so, fantastic. And, that's and fantastic. those two comics were both written by Stan Lee. So years later, it all comes back. So this, uh, you can clap for that story. I mean, that's an amazing story. I told you, it's not like, like you kind of walk into the comic, and it is. It's a really inviting place. You walk in, you're like, this is a really sweet spot. There's cool people doing it, but you have no idea. Like, that's what went into making it happen. That's an incredible story. So both of you grew up with a love for comics. Both of you have built a life around comics. What is it? Like, what is so unique about this, this form of storytelling? Because you, you talk a lot about storytelling in your presentation, it's it's visual, but but movies are visual, and the, you know there's a kind of a central story, and it's in in the, the episodal, but you can get novels that are episodal. What what is it about comics that are, that are unique? And I'll, I'll start with you. We can pitch back, but like, what's so unique about the form? I, I feel like my love of comics is pre-logical. I just love them, and and that's it, right? But. Um, but if I wanted to find a reason, I, I think there's, there is this unique combination of words and pictures that, that I just find fascinating. Uh, pictures, th these, are, these are pictures that don't move. They're pictures in their simplest form, but they can still evoke such deep emotion if they're, if they're done right, you know. And, and, and I, think, um, I think trying to figure that out is a constant puzzle that I, I, like, to, I like diving into. It's the, the energy that comes from the collision of the yes. image and the word. And the word, yes, absolutely. What do you, what, for you, like, what is it about comics that like draws you in or that you think people just can't get enough of? Well, for for me, it's uh, going to a place that I wouldn't go otherwise. Okay. Uh, for me, it's uh, it's learning things that I wouldn't learn otherwise, um, and I, I cared. Uh, about these characters from uh, from an early age, um, there was something that was really entrancing about getting lost in a different world. And I, I I was a pretty voracious reader. I read a lot of a lot of other things, but when I found comics, it's like the world stopped because there was something extra there. I didn't really learn this until many many years later. But if you think about it, and this is true, comics are the only form of entertainment that works both on the right brain and the left brain. They're both cognitive and interpretive. It takes something incredibly special 
for you as a reader of a comic to go from panel to panel. You're the one who's the director. You are the one who puts the, the voices into the characters' heads. You're the one who fills in the gaps between the panels. <laughs> You're the one who reads it as whatever pace you want it to be. So you sp you're in control of time. You're in control of space. You are, you, you are this sort of master planner as you're reading someone else's words and, and looking at someone else's pictures. It, but it is, it is a really powerful form of, of entertainment and education. And we're finding now that a lot of, a lot of educators are really jumping into comics because of that. Um, bridging the old way, the text way, and the new way, which is all visual. Right. So it's um, for me. Uh, I, although my tastes have have changed and uh, hopefully matured over all of these years that I've been into comics, um, there's still nothing for me like you know going back and reading one of those old ones. And I get it. You know, the ones that really mean something to me that I loved when I was a kid, I still get that feeling in the pit of my stomach that, wow, Peter Parker's a loser, but I love that guy, and I really, <laughs> I want him to get Gwen Stacy. I want, I want him, you know, yeah. right? Um, I, um, I, I, I root for these people, yeah. and, uh, and they, they, were, they were friends of mine on the page. I love that. That love for comics. Oh, we've got a question right here. Oh. You're talking to the right guy. <laughs> this is the guy that pitched Stan Lee. Like he's, he's got something for um, everyone. You know, um, uh, Gene knows, uh, knows this person I'm going to mention, but uh, one of the, the best-selling cartoonists in the world right now is someone who does books that primarily appeal to younger girls, and her name is Raina Telgemeier. Um, there's a, she has a, a three different graphic novels out uh, that are all hers. Uh, one is called Smile, about her getting braces. Another is, about, is called Sisters, and it's about her relationship with her sister. And uh, another one is called Drama, and it's about um, uh, high school drama, uh, being in the, the drama club at school. So um, these are phenomenally popular books. There are literally millions of copies in print. So, uh, but there, there are a lot of other things that, are, uh, uh, that have appeal to girls as well. Um, you know, I always make the invitation, come in. Uh, anyone on my staff can help you find something, um, or I can do it as well. Uh, but uh, our goal is always to make happy readers. One of the things that we do, we work with schools... We've seen that once comics are introduced into the libraries uh, and into classrooms, the reading scores start to take off. Um, I did some work with a professor a number of years ago who wrote a book called Going Graphic Comics in, in the Classroom, um, in which he was able to detail some of these um, uh, schools in which the reading scores just shot up once comics were introduced. We, we have spent so many years trying to teach kids how to read one certain way and that's not necessarily the way that excites them and so when we give them high level high interest material to read that's what keeps them coming back um, and that's nurturing readers is like that's my mission I, I just it, it's something that uh, means a lot to me when when people come back and say I really like that last thing you recommended to me and it doesn't matter whether they're five years old or 95 years old. Um, uh, um, when I'm able to give somebody some entertainment that they want to come back to, I, I get fed yeah. by it. You've, you've had a bit to say about the role of comics in education. And you, you tell stories about being a substitute teacher and yeah. ha, ha, kind of having to figure out a way to engage in students. And, and 
and using comics. Can you give us a little highlight about that? Sure, sure. I, I have another recommendation for you, though. Go. Is that all right? Yeah. There's a, there's a book called uh, El Defo by oh, a man. cartoonist named C.C. Bell. It's the very first graphic novel to have earned a print uh, a, uh, a Newbery honor. Amazing book. And there's a series called. Um, called Baby Mouse as well. Those are both... The, the, El Defo actually has... I think it appeals to both genders. And, and Baby, Mouse, Baby Mouse appeals to both genders too, but it's pink. And, and, the, and the author and artist say that they make it pink because they specifically want to tell girls, this is for you. So about uh, my experiences using comics in the classroom. Several years ago, uh, I was asked to sub a, for a, an Algebra two class. One of my colleagues in the math department had gone on long-term leave. But at the same time, I was working as the school's educational technologist, which is just a fancy way of saying I was helping other teachers use computers in their classroom. What this meant for this Algebra two class was every two or three weeks, I would have to miss two or three classes. And that's terrible. Like, it's terrible enough to have a sub. But to have a sub for a sub is the worst. So to, wait, to kind of make up for it, I would videotape myself doing lectures, uh, and I'd give them to my sub to play, and this ended up being a complete disaster. I'd have students coming up to me and saying, you know, Mr. Yang, we thought you were boring in person, but on video, oh my God. <laughs> so as a, as a desperate second attempt, I illustrated these lessons as comics. And I did it really fast, you know, no penciling, just straight inks. Uh, every lesson would come out to four to six pages. I'd Xerox them, give them to my sub. My sub would hand them out to my students. And, and much to my surprise, they actually loved this. I, I had thought up until this point that kids liked looking at screens. So I would have bet, if I had a bet on video versus comics, I totally would have bet video. But that ended up not being in the case. And, and a lot of the reason why they were into the comics was, was because, I mean, Joe, Joe brought this up already. Like, with the comic, they could read it as quickly or as, as slowly as they wanted, and mm -hmm. that wasn't true of the video. And, and, and the, the comic also conveyed concepts visually, uh, unlike their textbook. So it was kind of this happy medium between um, the best of the screen and the best of their textbook. That's powerful. Couple, any other questions from the floor? Over here, we got two, right here in front. <laughs> oh, you want okay. Um, I think web comics are, are great. I, I'm I'm a print guy, so uh, I love holding a book in my hand when I read. But I also understand the um, uh, the the thing about web comics, especially for a cartoonist, is it's a way to find an audience and get your stuff out there without having to go through all of the expenses of printing and distribution. Uh, so uh, there's that, and there's a ton of really fun stuff that's available on the web. As um, as far as it goes with the, the movies, um, uh, you know, proliferation is kind of a hard word because it, it kind of says that there's too many. And uh, at this point, it almost uh, it, there's going to be more soon. So I, I don't want this to be the proliferation right now. I want it to continue the way it's going. Anytime a publisher or a, uh, the rights holder of a, of a superhero character or a comics-related character wants to put a $200 million commercial on the screen for the stuff that I sell, I'm a happy guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I think Joe said it all. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> do, you, do you like you see uh, when you see the, these movies like this? This image, I I I can't breathe if I look at it because uh, I'm so excited about about the film. Like, it's very exciting for me. Superman's gonna win. You know that, right? I don't yes. believe that at all. I really, I think that, that I think that might not be true. I've seen the previews. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like you do, uh, the way I think about it, it, it's sort of the way like maybe a, a hip hop artist might listen to Iggy Azalea and hear like like she's selling lots and lots of copies, but like she's sort of watering down the genre. Like, is the, is there a sense of like that's neat, but it's it's not as true to the story? I mean, is there is there like a kind of a difference? Is it just kind of a different animal? I just don't think that in in that analogy there's a. a any purism to it because um, 
that hip hop artists are stealing from <laughs> from, from previous generations of music. True story. You know, they're putting ELO and Phil Collins into their stuff, yeah. and, and new people, uh, people who are listening to the hip hop think, "Wow, this is the coolest new thing ever," and it's actually Phil Collins. It's borrowed from <laughs> 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Did you know you're listening to Phil Collins? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't love Phil Collins apparently. <laughs> Very cool. Well, let me wrap it up with, with this. Is um, Superman wins, by the way. I don't, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I, like, Here, l- l- I'll tell you one thing about the Superman Batman. And, and for me, I've, whenever it's a choice between those two characters, uh, it's Superman for me. And, and I'll, I'll tell you the reason why. I believe that Superman is daytime and Batman's nighttime. And I'm much more of a guy who likes to live in the daytime. Oh, well, I like the night. The darker night. Whether it's Superman or it's Batman or it's American-born Chinese or... And we'll wrap it up on, on this question. For, for both of you, what is it that makes a great comic what makes a great comic story what makes a great comic writer what is greatness in the world of comics sit right next to you <laughs> i would agree with that well, i'd <laughs> sit right next to you <laughs> i appreciate that but i i think um i i think that it's it's just the same as any other art form right it's it has to be a book that connects to you in some way that that sort of uses the the strengths uh, of the medium, of the storytelling medium, to connect with you in, in, a, in a way that feels deep. Yeah, I think it, the comics, uh, as a form of communication and entertainment, need to move. They need to move the reader to someplace uh, different. Mm. And uh, there's, uh, that's what makes a good comic for me. If I feel like I've gone through a comic and... There might be battle scene or battle scene or little expository, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes characters. I want to feel like I've gone someplace and been moved by what's happened. Uh, and if I haven't, I feel like it's sort of an unsatisfying experience. <laughs> so I look for the ones that uh, will move me ahead. And a lot of this, the, the quotes that you were putting into your uh, presentation... That's, that's some of the stuff that I look for, is yeah. just uh, things that are going to push us forward. Fantastic. Will you guys help me in thanking Gene Yang and Joe Field for their time tonight? Big round of applause. Thank you so much. And, of course, thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. You can find us online by visiting atseaevents.com. Also, be sure to check out Jeannie Yang's latest work, which includes the launch on July 13th of this summer uh, of New Superman. The comic storyline, the Superman storyline, actually takes place in China, where a character named Kenji Kong is infused with Superman's powers, along with so much else that DC Comics has planned for the Rebirth series this summer. This looks to be a really, really interesting, interesting story. If you like what we're up to here, please share this with a friend or a few friends and leave us a review at iTunes. Until next time.